Thank you for listening to another episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, maps of the airfield, mission breakdowns, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content. They may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. The streets of Haverhill were blistering as it was a beautiful spring morning and many inhabitants were out and about. Walking among the people in the street was Tommy, who had something in his hands that he was holding on to as though it were the most precious thing that he had ever held. His pace was quick, his heart blistered along with every nervous and anxious thought that was running through his mind. Arriving back at base, Tommy proceeded to put the item in his pocket as to not draw any attention to it. Inside the hut, Willie and Beans were changing their bedsheets, since they both slept in and others had already changed their bedsheets earlier in the morning before heading out to enjoy a beautiful day before the rain came in. With a cigar in his mouth, Willie attempted to tuck in his sheets. Beans, almost done with his bed, couldn't help but notice the room getting more and more fogged up with the smoke coming off Willie's cigar. Hey Willie, isn't it kind of dumb to be changing your bedsheets all while smoking a cigar right over top of it? Beans, a little ash never hurt anybody. Besides, helps to keep the tone of the room. Uh, what tone are you trying to set? A tone that says that men sleep here. You know, true men. Men that aren't afraid of getting a little ash on their bench. Besides, haven't you ever heard of the saying, from dust we came to dust we shall become? I think Lincoln said that. Oh, it's from when dust we came to dust we shall return. It's not from Lincoln, by the way. That's from Genesis 3, when God comes to Adam, you know, saying that we will have to eat until we return to the ground since we were taken from it and when it says from dust you are to dust you will return well excuse me i forgot that you're a wisconsin native what does that have to do with it i'm lutheran yeah same thing the door of the hut quickly opened and walking in was tommy hey oh tommy where the fuck have you been hey listen if you think i'm gonna be cleaning your bed sheets for you you got another thing coming Closing the door and walking closer to Willie, Tommy said, Willie, you're my pal, my brother, and Beans, you can be a part of this too. Brother? Well, apparently you're just an awkward cousin, Willie joked, looking at Beans as Tommy slowly got closer to him. What is it? Beans asked, looking very confused. Tommy reached into his pocket and pulled out something that both Willie and Beans were not expecting. A ring. Not just any ring. A thin yellow gold ring with a single emerald gemstone piece. Willie's eyes widened as he couldn't believe what he was seeing. Holy shit, Tommy, were the only things that Willie could say. Is that a proposal ring? Beans asked. Engagement. They're called engagement rings. Tommy, let me see that. Willie commented as he gently took the ring from Tommy and held it between his thumb and his index finger. Examining it, he commented. So when did you realize that? But before Willie could finish, the very anxious and nervous Tommy answered, Yesterday, uh, after we got back, it's all I could think about, you know? It, you, you said it yourself, Willie. When you find a girl like that, you don't let them go. Well, I don't know if that's exactly what I said, but yes. Come here, you little fucking bastard. 
Willie said, throwing his arms around Tommy and giving him a huge hug with a pat on the back to finish. Good for you, Tommy. How much did that thing cost? Beans asked with joy plastered all over his face. Mm, 75? 75? What? Is that not a good deal? Asked Tommy. Well, no, you know, for the market price, sure, but did you barter with the man? Where did you buy it from? I bought it from that place down the street from the post office, you know, uh, Jones Griffith. Griffith? Italian? I I don't know. He looked like he's a a regular Brit. Catholic or Protestant? What? How would I know that? What does that matter? Everything, Tommy. Have I taught you nothing? Were there any any crucifixes or statues of Mary in the place? Not that I saw. Protestants. Tommy, I could have got them to bring the price down. Well, you don't know until you know, and now he knows. Tommy, when are you going to pop the question? Beans inquired. I'm actually doing it this afternoon. I, 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 I know it seems rushed, but I just can't wait any longer. Besides, I know exactly where she's going to be. I'm supposed to meet her there today anyways. Holy Christ, Tommy, that's incredible. I want to be there f- oh. Willie started, then realizing that he couldn't leave the base due to his lockdown. Oh, damn. Tommy muttered as the reality sunk in for him too. Bean seemed puzzled, but soon came to the same predicament. Don't worry about that, Tommy. Okay, this is your moment with your girl. I'll manage. You shouldn't let old Willie mesh that up for you. You sure? Absolutely, Willie replied with conviction. Thanks, Willie, Tommy said bashfully. And with pure joy and pride, Willie and Beans both leaned in, embracing their brother in support of his big moment. Hours later, May 26th, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 1300 hours. Jack had spent the entire day in bed, not moving an inch, not even for a bathroom break. The stench of urine permeated the entire hut, driving Beck and Reinhold to flee the moment they woke up. Among those concerned, Beck regularly checked in on his grounded pilot, but it was Ronnie who kept the closest eye on Jack. He stationed himself nearby, ensuring he visited Jack's hut at least once every hour. Outside the hut, Ronnie stood puffing on a cigar, alongside none other than the boss himself, who had arrived to check up on Jack. However, Ronnie advised the boss against entering, fearing Jack might grow upset if he spotted him. The boss 
though slightly taken aback by Ronnie's direct order in defiance of rank protocol, understood that the experienced officer was simply looking out for a fellow airman in distress, a sentiment that Ronnie seemed to be deeply empathizing with. Are you planning to get him airborne soon? Ronnie asked, his gaze directly away from the boss. Puffing on a cigarette, the boss considered the question, responding while looking at the ground. I'm thinking he may not be fit to lead a crew into combat. Maybe I'll assign him as a co-pilot with another crew for a few missions. Turning to face the boss, Ronnie intervened. Listen, you're in charge, but give him a few days to gather himself. Sending him up without a leadership role might make things worse. When he ditched in the channel last time, I wanted to ground him, but Colonel Poole and Lieutenant Parnell insisted that I keep sending him up. I'm starting to think that that's what broke him, the boss said, exhaling smoke and meeting Ronnie's gaze. Now, you see, if you hadn't sent him up and Parnell got it, that would have truly broke him. He flew with his crew, who shared in his losses. He was there. He didn't have to hear about it secondhand. Let me rephrase. He didn't have to hear about it from men who were up there when he got hit. Trust me, setting him up was the right call. Well, see, I feared that he might crack if I put him up. I could send him to a facility. No, please don't. Ronnie interjected. Don't do that to him. Mickey, towards the end, he should have gone to a flak farm. That's who you send, not Jack, not where he's at. Taking in Ronnie's words, the boss weighed his options. After a moment of shared silence outside Jack's hut, the boss, realizing that Jack might overhear, departed for his office at High Brass Hall, thanking Ronnie as he left. Soon after, Ronnie entered the hut to complete another check-in on Jack. Tommy briskly strolled along the cobblestone streets of downtown Haverhill. The sky was a brilliant blue canvas painted with streaks of white clouds, and a gentle breeze carried the scent of blooming flowers. As he walked, a school bell echoed through the air, releasing a chorus of excited laughter and chatter from children pouring out of the school gates. Their uniforms and satchels in hand, they darted across the street, their youthful exuberance interjecting life into the quaint town. Further down the road, a group of men engaged in a spirited game of chess outside a corner cafe. Concentration etched in their face. They moved their pieces with precision, occasionally erupting into laughter or friendly banter. Despite the inviting warmth of the afternoon, Tommy felt a familiar tug within him, a longing for respite, for a quiet moment of reflection. He considered stopping at a nearby pub for a drink, a refuge where he could momentarily escape the moments that were weighing on his shoulders. However, mindful of the need to maintain a composed facade, he hesitated. The thought of the telltale scent of alcohol lingering on his breath dissuaded him. With a measured stride and a lingering glance at the pub's inviting door, Tommy continued as he leisurely walked through the bustling streets, cherishing the simplicity of the afternoon and the fleeting glimpses of everyday life having played out in front of him in Haverhill. Tommy arrived at a familiar place, the park. Not just any park, the Haverhill Recreation Park, where he had gone with Betty almost a month ago for their reading session under their favorite tree. 
Tommy knew Betty was going to be here today and was planning on meeting her anyways, but today, he had a mission to complete. As Tommy got closer to where Betty was laying, nose deep into a book, Betty couldn't help but hear Tommy's quick pace as he walked down the sidewalk and stepped over the ankle-high wooden barrier rail. With a large smile appearing on Betty's face, as soon as she saw Tommy's serious and nervous demeanor, she knew what he was bringing her. Betty? Tommy asked as he arrived at Betty and got down on one knee before her. Betty, with her radiant smile and eyes that sparkled like the sun dancing on a calm lake, let out a subtle laugh of joy which carried by the gentle breeze, filling the air, harmonizing with the rustling leaves above. Tommy, a mix of nervous anticipation and unwavering love, he reached out for Betty's hand, the feeling of her skin providing the antidote for his nervousness. They shared a quiet moment, the spoken language of their hearts resonating in the tranquility of the park. Words, usually a fluent river for Tommy, momentarily eluded him. Instead, he let the silence wave a tapestry of emotions. With a tender smile, he pulled out the ring from his pocket, the love in his heart transcending any words that he could muster. Betty's breaths of joy rang through the air as Tommy presented a ring, a symbol of their enduring love. Tears of happiness welled up in their eyes, shimmering like the morning dew on petals. In that timeless moment, under the sheltering embrace of the oak tree, Tommy poured out his heart. His words, sincere and heartfelt, echoed in the promises of a lifetime of love, shared dreams, and unwavering devotion. Betty's radiant smile blossomed into a resounding yes that echoed throughout the park, embracing the world in their joyous declaration. In that serene corner of the universe, two souls found their forever in each other's embrace, surrounded by the timeless beauty of nature and their boundless love. Beck made his way back to check up on Jack, a nagging image of Jack calling out for Parnell lingering in his mind. The haunting calls had become a topic of discussion among Thurlow's officers, sparking theories of ghostly presence, none realizing that it was their own, causing the eerie echoes. Approaching the hut, Beck found Ronnie stationed nearby, seemingly standing guard. What surprised him was the presence of the base's Protestant chaplain, Chaplain Schwartz. The contrast between the gaunt, neat chaplain and the rugged Ronnie couldn't have been more starker. Curiosity vexed, Beck approached the two and began to eavesdrop on their conversation. To his surprise, they were discussing Irish whiskey. Their dialogue paused as they noticed Beck approaching, with Ronnie addressing him. Your pilot's got a lot of friends. Be sure to tell him that. Thanks, uh, how's he doing? Beck inquired, glancing at the chaplain. He's, uh, he's pseudo-dead at the moment. Whiskey does that, but he's breathing. Rev came by to check up on him, but we got caught up chatting. Roddy replied, accepting a cigarette from the chaplain. Hey, I'm sorry to hear about your crew, Lieutenant Beck. 
Chaplain Schwartz sympathized as he offered a smoke to Beck, which she declined. Thanks, but I, I heard you were looking for me that the next day. Apologies for not stopping by. Beck responded. No need to apologize. Feel free to visit my hut in the evening or visit me in the chapel during the day. Anytime, the chaplain offered. Thanks for that, Beck replied. Then turning to Ronnie, he continued. I'm glad he's at least alive. I really don't know what else I can do, you know? I just... I wasn't trained for this sort of thing. I just... I I guess I just wanted to... You wanted to know what you could do for him. For you and the rest of the crew. Chaplain Schwartz interjected, tucking his pack of cigarettes away. Yeah. Beck sighed. How many buddies have you lost? Ronnie inquired, puffing on his cigarette. Depends on the definition. Beck replied. I guess I just haven't gotten close enough to call anybody a buddy. That's smart. Keep that distance. Helps in the profession. I lost three myself and swore not to get attached to anyone like that ever again. Ronnie remarked. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was Lieutenant Parnell who got you onto Lieutenant Miller's crew, right? Chaplain Schwartz redirected the conversation. Beck nodded, reflecting on the significance. I know I'm a chaplain, but... I believe that God put you there for a reason. The chaplain concluded. Got it, Rev. I just, uh... Beck began to say, but halted as Jack, greasy and disheveled, emerged from the hut's door, surprising everybody. There he is. How you feeling? Ronnie asked. Morning. Jack murmured, checking his nearly glued wristwatch. I guess afternoon... Well, I feel like shit. Everything hurts. I think someone pissed in my bed last night. A subtle sound of a fart added an unexpected humor to the moment. I think someone just shit my pants too. If I knew I was uh, having company over, I'd be more presented. A smile flickered across Beck's face, mirrored by Ronnie and Chaplain Schwartz, trying to suppress their laughter. Yeah, there's there's a gremlin around here that's known for doing that. Had it happened to me too, Ronnie remarked. Bastards. What do I uh, what do I owe this pleasure, Chaplain? Jack asked, attempting to focus on Chaplain Schwartz. I just was here to check up on you and to see how you're doing, and possibly see this gremlin myself, the chaplain replied. Either of you got a smoke? I seem to have uh lost all of mine. Jack requested. Yeah. Yeah, sure thing. Chaplain Schwartz offered, providing Jack a cigarette and a light. As Jack took the first puff, Ronnie chimed in. The showers are empty for you. You can feel like a king and have the whole shower just to yourself. How often does that happen? That sounds lovely right about now. And smells lovely too. Jack replied. I'll uh, I'll get your bed changed over while you're out there too. Chaplain Schwartz offered. But Jack declined saying, No, no need. I, I appreciate that, but seriously, no need. Either he does it or I do it. I need to go back in there soon and I can't be in there with that kind of smell. Beck added, trying to lighten the mood. Jack chuckled slightly. Hey, it's not aviation fuel, cordite, or that military stale sweat stench. That smells like roses by comparison. (laughs) To each his own, I guess. I can get Butch to whip you up a fresh batch of coffee. That'll get the pistons primed for sure. Beck replied. That sounds awful, but necessary. 
I'll take you up on that offer. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. There's no need to thank us. Come on. Let's get you washed up. Ronnie said, helping Jack back into the hut. Under the sprawling branches of the park's old oak tree, Tommy sat against the sturdy trunk while Betty lay in his lap, admiring the glimmering engagement ring adorned on her finger. When did you get this? Betty asked. First thing this morning, when I found out I could get off base. Tommy replied, his eyes reflecting the sincerity of his words. Why the rush? Betty inquired. Her curiosity peaked. I didn't see a point in waiting. Life's short, especially in times of war. Tommy explained, his voice carrying the weight of his convictions. But would you have asked me in the same way if it had not been for the thought of you not returning? Betty pressed. War is how we found each other. If you know something to be true, why wait? Tommy replied, his gaze fixed on her. Betty, sensing evasion, probed again, asking if circumstances truly mattered. I, I would have asked you the same way, regardless. Tommy simplified, his voice clear and resolute. Can we get married right away then? Betty asked suddenly, surprising Tommy. W what do you mean? Tommy stuttered, caught off guard by the request. My grandfather knows our parish priest. He could marry us right away. Betty explained eagerly, her eyes shining with hope. In that fleeting moment of Betty's unexpected proposal, time seemed to suspend for Tommy. His thoughts raced like a thundering hooves. His heart pounded like a rapid rhyme against his chest. A thousand emotions collided within him, a whirlwind of uncertainty. His gaze met Betty's earnest eyes, shimmering with hope and longing. Her question hung in the air, almost tangible with his anticipation. But amidst the whirlwind of thoughts, a steadfast resolve emerged. With a hesitant yet fervent breath, he found his voice. Yes, he finally murmured, the words carrying the weight of a thousand unspoken promises. Betty's eyes widened in delight, a radiant smile grazed upon her lips. The golden hues of the setting sun painted a surreal backdrop as Betty leaned in, her excitement palpable in the air. Their movements were hesitant, yet charged with an electric anticipation. Their embrace under the sheltering branches of the ancient oak tree with a symphony of tenderness. Betty's fingers traced the lines of Tommy's face, her touch serving as a whisper of promises of forever. As they leaned in, their lips met in a tender, passionate kiss that echoed the depths of their commitment. Time seemed to stand still for that moment, the world around them fading into a distant blur. The embrace of the tree's sparling branches seemed to cocoon them. Their kiss spoke volumes, sealing their decision to embark on this thrilling journey together. Hey, what's up, y'all? You want something new to listen to? Well, let me introduce you to the Deep Dive Podcast, the podcast where two best friends come together and review the latest TV shows and movies, everything from anime, action, to sci-fi thrillers. 
click the link tree in our bio, it'll take you to all of our social media pages, including our Spotify, where every Monday, me, Miles, and my other co-host, Seth, will be bringing you a new episode. So grab a drink, grab a snack, come join us, and let's dive in. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by going to our Patreon page, you can find all kinds of bonus content that will help to enrich your experience while listening to Snafu. These are things like pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in each episode. You can find maps of the airfield. You can find mission breakdowns, formation breakdowns, all kinds of phenomenal stuff. Plus, there's some bonus material in there as well. For the price of one cup of coffee a month, you can access these bonus features that will, again, help to enrich your experience as you listen to Snafu. Personally, I want to thank Jason, Mark, Ruben, Dan, Rich, Fernando, and Kyle for supporting the podcast thus far and continuously helping to keep this project going. Thank you guys so much for supporting. Thank you guys so much for listening. And with that being said, let's get back to the podcast. Jack sat in the officer's mess hall, reluctantly eating a plate of leftover lunch that Mama, fortunately, hadn't discarded yet. Ronnie and Beck joined him, sipping coffee and engaging their own conversations, while Jack silently ate. Ronnie paused and inquired about Jack's well-being. Jack shrugged, stating that he felt dreadful, but hadn't thrown up yet, which he considered a good sign. Ronnie then broached the subject of the boss likely questioning Jack's fitness to fly and asked for Jack's thoughts. Without hesitation, Jack replied, At this point, I don't want to be here any longer than I have to be. If I'm doing all of this just to end up in some crater or I'm destined to make it through this and get the hell out of here, I just want to get it over with. Not a bad answer, I don't think. Beck responded. Ronnie continued, asking if Jack felt fit to lead his crew or if he wanted someone else to step in. Jack pondered and responded, Listen, I'll be fine to resume my duties. Nothing to worry about, really. I just, I thank you guys for caring enough to ask me. Let me tell you, Ronnie, they should have made you the squadron commander. Ronnie chuckled. Yeah, you're not the first one to have said that, but I'm not qualified for that job, Jack. You know that. What makes you say that, Ronnie? Beck inquired. Because I care. They'd have my ass transferred so quickly because I couldn't give a fuck less about target results. Everything we do at this point is just pointless and useless. I've flown enough missions and have been here long enough to know that we're just helping to justify someone's rank and position in Washington. They're not here to help win the war. If we were, we'd be doing something else. And people think I'm the pessimist. Jack commented. It's not about being pessimistic or optimistic. It's just the way it is. Seriously, how many times are we told that our efforts, quote, wiped a target off the map only for us to go back and bomb that same target less than a month later? This past mission wasn't about bombing a target. I talked with Leslie. He told me that you guys didn't even try to hit the primary or secondary targets. It's become goddamn clear to me and just about everybody else that's worth their God-given brain that we're just bait and hook for the Luftwaffe. Hearing this, Jack reflected on the escorts during the last mission, 
realizing that Ronnie's observations aligned with his own thoughts. He remembered overhearing Tommy and Willie making comments relating to this theory before the mission began. You don't really think the army's using us as bait, do you? I mean, I wouldn't put it past them, but what would be the long-term purpose of it? Beck asked. It's no secret that the Germans control the skies. I remember during Big Week, some of the older crews, most of whom are no longer with us, they made comments about how, you know, the objective of the missions had changed. We'd never known anything different. Now that we've got escorts that take us deeper into the Third Reich now more than ever, we've got numbers to send up, and we're just the carrot to get the Germans up in the air. The bombing is just a byproduct, but that's my point. It's not about the bombing anymore. So, why are we acting like it is? Our job is to keep our guys alive, bringing as many of us home as possible. And that's what it is. A job. We're not here to win some glory or to get some metal pinned on our jacket. That may be what we signed up for, but that's not the profession that we're in. Not anymore it is. Ronnie then focused his eyes onto Jack and said, So... While the boss and the others in High Brass Hall are focused on their bigger picture, I'm focused on making sure the guys like you aren't killing yourself when you don't need to. You've got nine men to look after, Beck there included. You need to do what you need to do in order for you to do that job. Whether it takes finding religion, a woman, your men, or simply getting through the day to enjoy some shitty coffee, you need to find something that's going to keep you going. What's yours? Beck asked. What do I look to? To get me out of bed? Ronnie asked. Beck nodded his head. Honestly, I see religion as a joke. Women provide distraction through their company. The drink gives me the courage when we get back, and I don't know. I guess I, I've i learned a while ago, if you can't find something to live for, you're best to find something for you to die for. That evening, the enlisted men were leaving the mess hall and heading to the field house for the night's movie, Girl Crazy, starring Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. Among them, Marshy seemed particularly thrilled, harboring a secret crush on Judy Garland that he hadn't publicly admitted yet. As they entered the space, the little bull crew found their spot in the middle of the bleachers, with Tommy noticeably absent, still spending time with his beloved. You know, they should have movie nights more on base when there's not a lockdown. There's actually room in here, Mills remarked. I know. I do feel bad that you guys are all staying in because of me, confessed Willie. Willie, come on. You're like a brother to us. If you can't go, none of us can go, Marshy added. I'm only staying in because I don't have money to spend, Mills joked. How? How could you possibly have blown through your entire pay? Booth asked. He's doing that joking thing that he rarely does now. Willie added. Oh, you were being funny. Beans questioned, looking across the row at Mills. I was, Mills replied before the lights turned off and the movie began. About three minutes into the film, the door cracked open and a short, skinny man entered, silhouetted against the yellow light. Aggravated murmurs filled the room until the latecomer whispered, Willie? Tommy? Willie asked in surprise. Tommy navigated his way to the little bull crew, amidst annoying comments from others. What are you doing here? Where's your date? Mills whispered. She had other 
dinner plans. I'll explain later. Tommy replied as he settled next to Willie, prompting Beans and Willie to lean in eagerly. Well, how'd it go? Willie asked. Great, she said yes, of course. Tommy beamed. Dash great, Tommy! Willie exclaimed, receiving some more complaints from the audience. What's going on? whispered Mills. Tommy proposed to his girl. Keep up! Willie retorted, earning more discontent from those around him. Ah, shove it. Garfield isn't even on screen yet. Willie shot back. It's Garland, you sack of shit. Marshy fired back. Hey, if you're gonna jib-jab, do it outside. Someone in front of them exclaimed. Yeah, come on, let's go outside. I promise, it won't be long. Tommy proposed. All right, fine, come on, let's go. Conceded Willie. You didn't tell them I proposed? Tommy asked Willie and Beans as they stood up. I figured that you were going to tell them. Only Muth and Marshy remained seated. When Willie asked Marshy to join them, he argued back. No, goddammit, I actually want to see this movie. Come on, it won't be long. Besides, it's just a romantic movie, like all the others. Mills commented, further irking the room. Come on, Marshy. Muth, you're devoid of all pleasure and happiness, so you can stay. Willie fired off. Jesus, alright, five minutes tops. I'm coming back inside. Marshy said as he got up, annoyed by Willie's comment. Muth also got up, rolling his eyes. Catch the spirit. Come on, guys, this is actual love I'm bringing you guys into. Willie commented, patting Marshy and Muth on their shoulders as they passed by him. The men gathered outside with only a small amount of sunlight remaining in the sky. Mills questioned. Alright, so what's all this about? Tommy, did you say you proposed to Betty? That's right. I got the ring today and I proposed to her. She said yes, of course, and uh, hang tight with me here. Here's the thing. She doesn't want to wait to get married. She wants to do it as soon as possible. Now, Willie, can you see if you're selected for a mission tomorrow? Tommy asked. I can find out, sure, but wait. Where and when are you planning on doing the shindig? Willie inquired. Well, she knows a priest, or her grandfather does. She's actually at her parents' house right now. One, to ask if the priest can marry us tomorrow, um, if it all depends on if we're flying or not. Um, also, to, you know, break the news to her family. Can he do it on base? Mills asked. Well, here's the thing. She wants to get married at this church that her grandfather's friend is a minister of. She said it holds special meaning to her since she was baptized there and her parents and grandparents both got married there. Tommy, you know if you do this thing tomorrow off base, I can't be there. Willie commented. Yes. Fuck. Ah, come on, I didn't think of that. Tommy admitted. Willie, when do you get off punishment? Muth asked. Uh, not until next Wednesday. Willie answered. The 30th? Asked Beans. No, the 6th. Well, actually, the morning of the 7th is when it no longer takes effect. Tommy, just ask Betty if she can wait until after the 6th. No big deal. Alright, now I'm going to go back in and enjoy the movie. Marshy said as he turned around and headed back in. Wait, 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 wait. Here's, here's the thing, though. I tried that already, but she insisted that we do this thing like ASAP. Tommy explained. Why, though? Getting married is a big thing. Aren't you worried that she's making you rush into this thing? Marshy reluctantly asked, rolling his eyes. She doesn't want to wait because, you know, there may not be a tomorrow. Oh, Christ, and she's the one making you out to be the pessimist. Willie muttered to himself. Okay, sorry, it, it wasn't 100% all her. She, she didn't go into why she wanted to get married soon. I'm just, I'm just guessing. 
Well, then go to her and say, since she's always talking about how we shouldn't dwell on our mortality, that you guys should just wait until after Willie gets off his punishment. Marshy suggested. Uh, could you try to see if the boss will make an exception? Beans asked. Beans, this is the Bosch that we're talking about. Willie jumped in. Right. Yeah, I mean, you can at least mention it to her, Tommy. I mean, Willie's your best man. She will understand. Beans reiterated it. Plus, Patty will want a date for her best friend's wedding, right? Mills asked, patting Willie on his back in an almost sarcastic way. I can try, Tommy said. Yes, please, please, Tommy. I don't want to infringe upon your special day, but come on, it's me. You really wanted to get married and me not be there? Willie asked. No, of course not. Good, okay, that settles it. Now, I'm going back inside now, Marshy said. Marshy said as he quickly hustled back in before he could get delayed again. The others followed suit, except for Tommy and Willie, who remained outside in silence. Once everyone went back inside, Tommy broke the tension in silence, saying, I'm sorry, Willie. I, I forgot. No need to apologize, Tommy. This isn't about me, and it shouldn't be. Listen, I'm proud of you, bud. I'm serious. We'll figure it out. Hell, I'll break out if I have to. You and Betty mean that much to me. Willie said, before he and Tommy embrace one another in a tight, brotherly hug. White Pony, a pub on the northwestern side of Haverhill, buzzed with airmen from the 381st Bombardment Group, the 300th Bombardment Group, and infantrymen from nearby Army training bases. Sitting near the door was Jack and Beck, having just finished a conversation with a group of infantrymen. Jack ordered a pint of ale, though the mere sight and smell of it turned his stomach. Beck, on the other hand, had a pint of a house stout, waiting to see if Jack could muster up the stomach and strength to drink more booze. As Jack's lips touched the glass, the urge to vomit hit him, and he quickly set the glass down to avoid losing control. Can't do it, huh? Beck asked. I'll, I'll warm up to the idea. I just gotta, well, work up to it, Jack replied. Maybe tonight you just sit this one out, you know? Drink something that's not poison. Like what you're drinking? Jack retorted, his eyes and lips betraying slight offense at Beck's suggestion. I'm not the one hungover, okay? If you can't stomach something, it's your stomach's way of saying not to put something inside of it. But I can't just not drink, we're in a pub, Jack insisted. Sure you can. You remember that navigator on Desperate Journey, Portsmouth? That guy would go to pubs and never drink. Nobody gave a shit. I could care less about what anyone thinks. Besides, how did that turn out for him? Sorry, it just... It just doesn't feel right. It's like going into a bakery shop and not eating something. Just sitting there. People go into bakeries all the time for things like coffee. You don't always have to eat baked goods. I'm sure they can get you some coffee. I didn't come here to drink coffee, Beck. I know that, that, but that's just what you're looking at. Now, are you going to, are you going to drink that? Jack rolled his eyes and slid the beer over to Beck. Thank you, boy, Beck said before taking a gulp of Jack's beer, Jack watching him closely. Once Beck was finished, he set the glass down and continued. So, when do you think uh, it's going to happen? The invasion, that is. Oh, I don't know, Jack muttered. I know you don't know, but, like, guess. 
Those guys thought within a month or so. What do you think? I don't know. I, I, I really don't, Jack replied, looking up to see two familiar faces approaching. Oh, shit, Jack said. What? Beck asked before the two men arrived at the table. Hey, how we doing tonight, fellas? Said Talbot, with a rosy-faced Kime sitting next to him. We're, uh, we're doing all right. You? Jack asked. Good as good can be, especially on a beautiful night like this. Doesn't get better than this, does it? Talbot asked. No, it sure doesn't. Kaim added. Sit down, gentlemen. I don't think I've had the pleasure of talking with you. Beck said, pulling out a chair for Talbot. Jack shot Beck an annoying look, but refrained from saying anything rude. We'll take you up on your offer for a moment. We were looking for a place to sit anyways. Thank you, gentlemen. Talbot said, taking a seat next to Beck, with Kaim sitting next to Jack. How are you doing, Jack? Kaim asked. Fine. Yourself? Jack responded, as Beck and Talbot began their own conversation. Swell. Swell indeed. Hey, uh, sorry to hear about, well, uh, everything since we last talked. Jack's face fell and his jaw clenched as the innocent-looking, baby-faced man continued talking. I just can't imagine. Really, I, I just can't. I, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart that you can come to my hut if you need anything at all. Through clenched teeth, Jack replied, Yeah, thanks. Uh, thank you for that. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Time finished as an awkward silence fell among the men. Beck broke the silence by asking Kaim and Talbot about their dog and who was looking after him tonight. As they talked, Jack thought about the last time he spoke with Kaim and Talbot, and the sudden thought of Tango popped up. Horrific images of his butchered corpse flooded Jack's mind, and he wondered if he could ever recall any memories of his fallen friend without his demise overshadowing them. Trying to remember the time that he and Tango met on the train in St. Louis, Jack found his mind returning to the blasted remains of his friend. Jack snapped out of his thoughts, pulled out a cigarette, and tried to engage in the conversation. He burned through multiple cigarettes, attempting to distract himself from being the only one at the table not drinking. As moments passed, Jack felt uneasy, and a panic attack loomed. He stood up, excused himself, and told Beck that he was going for a short walk, promising to return once he was done. Beck reluctantly let him go, not wanting to embarrass Jack in front of Talbot and Kime. Outside, Jack took a deep breath, smelled the fresh spring air, and lit up another cigarette. He walked down the street, heading to an unknown location, taking slow breaths to starve off an oncoming panic attack. Unknown to Beck at that moment, Jack had no intention of returning to the pub. Instead, he would trek the three-mile walk back to base, taking a different route to avoid Beck's questioning. By the time Beck returned to their hut, he was surprised to find Jack fast asleep, having taken air sickness tablets. Looking at Jack peacefully lying on his bed, courtesy of Ronnie, A fresh pack of cigarettes and a clean ashtray sat next to him. 
Tommy headed to the mail office to find a phone where he could make a quick private call to Betty's house, hoping to reach her directly without involving her possibly concerned or upset parents. He dialed the number, and a woman with a more mature voice than Betty's answered. Tommy felt his breath stolen from his chest, panicking about what to say to his future mother-in-law, whom he hadn't even met yet, and whose name he didn't even know. Hello? The mother asked once more. Yes, uh, sorry, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for Betty, uh, Betty Rosedale, Tommy replied. Is this Tommy? The woman asked. Yes, yes ma'am, it is. There was a long pause, making Tommy's wonder if the line had been disconnected. Thankfully, she spoke up, saying, We have heard all about you, Tommy. Well, at least today we have. Douglas will not give you his blessing until he meets you. Tommy paused, checked his watch, and noticed that it was a quarter till nine. He then said, I, 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 I wouldn't want to, you know, uh, marrying her without meeting her parents because that would be awkward if I met you guys for the first time at the wedding, you know, but uh, yeah, I can, I, I, I can meet him. Uh, how, how does right now sound? Excuse me? I, I, I would like to meet you fine people tonight if I can. It's almost nine in the evening. We're rounding down for bed. I, I, I know, I know. I just, but I, I have to talk to Betty anyways. Um, I, I can be there soon. So it might be like killing two birds with one stone. You know, not that I see meeting you guys and marrying a daughter as killing birds. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those war bloodthirsty guys uh, you see in the movies. I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure I've killed people, but it's. All the name of war, right? My so, God, my God. Yes, yes, yes. Come over before you say anything more. Be here before nine. Betty's mother said before hanging up the phone. Tommy, now in a nervous sweat, took a deep breath, hung up the phone, and quickly exited the mail office. Tommy arrived at Betty's house after catching a ride from an officer who happened to be easily persuaded for a round trip. The officer was scheduled to return to the house at 9.45, just in time for both of them to get back to the base before 10 o'clock. Standing at her door, Tommy hesitated before knocking, contemplating the tone that he should set. Should he opt for a heavy knock to project masculinity, or would that be too aggressive? Perhaps a light, friendly knock would convey approachability without intimidation. Realizing time was of the essence... Tommy decided for a firm knock, followed by a light double tap on the door. Seconds later, Betty opened the door, greeting Tommy and gave him a kiss. You're crazy, I hope you know that, Betty commented. I am, I, I don't like crazy. Crazy isn't husband material, replied Tommy. You're going to be fine, just remember to make and keep eye contact with my father. He hates it when young men don't maintain eye contact. Eye contact, okay, Tommy said before being guided down the hallway and into the living room at the back of the two-story house. Entering the room, Tommy saw a husky man with round glasses sitting on the couch facing him, and a woman who resembled an older version of Betty on the love seat cornered with the main couch where Betty's dad was sitting. Betty's dad took a sip from his small coffee cup, setting it down as Tommy entered the room. Mother? Father? This is Tommy, Betty introduced with a nervous smile. Both of Betty's parents stood up and faced Tommy, 
who chose to maintain his gaze on her father, almost to an uncomfortable level. Tommy, we have heard lots about you the last few days. You seem to have made quite the impression on my wife and my daughter, Betty's dad said with his deep voice. An impression's one way to put it, Betty's mother joked. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. I, I just don't want to, uh, I love your daughter, and it's my sincere hope to spend the rest of my life with her, Tommy said with a wide smile and a hint of confidence. Well, that's reassuring. Come sit down for a little bit, Tommy. We want to know who it is that couldn't wait until tomorrow to meet us. Are you a fan of Snafu? Well, I have exciting news for you. Hi, I'm Seth Aaron, creator, writer, and producer of Snafu, and I'm thrilled to share Snafu's new merch store with you. Introducing the brand new Snafu Podcast merchandise collection, where you can now wear your love of aviation history and the Snafu Podcast with pride. From high-quality t-shirts that showcase the iconic loadable nose art to stylish accessories and even your very own loadable bomber jacket, there's a little something for everyone in our store. So go ahead and head over to www.snafupod.net and make your way over to the merch page and check it out for yourself. There will also be a link down in the show notes for you. Thank you guys for all of your much-needed support and feedback. It truly means the world to me. Now, enough with the interruptions. Let's get back to the podcast. Willie sat on his bunk, anxiously waiting for Tommy's return. Glancing at his wristwatch, he noticed that it was almost a quarter past ten, and Tommy's absence had him concerned. Mills, Marshy, and the others were all in their beds, awaiting Willie to turn off his light. Mills read an issue of Stars and Stripes as he waited. Come on, Tommy, come on. Don't do something stupid. Are we sure he left the base? Willie asked. I mean, where else could he possibly have gone? You don't think he's hiding somewhere on the base waiting for you to find him? Mills replied. No, but... Willie began before Tommy walked in through the door. Tommy, for the love of all things good, where the hell have you been? Willie exclaimed. I had, I had to make an emergency trip to Betty's house to talk to her and meet her parents. Very nice people. Grilled me like a fish, though. Tommy responded. Well, what did she say? Willie asked. Okay, so we, I got tied up in talking with her parents, and I kind of ran out of time. However, I did ask her when I was on my way out the door about waiting, and she said that she would rather us not wait. So you got nowhere with her. Tommy, damn it. Okay, I said I wasn't going to make this all about me. Sorry. Willie commented. I mean, not to sound like a prick here, but you can't attend because you messed up, Willie. You can't get mad at him for that. Muth chimed in. Thank you, Muth, for having my back. Really means a lot to me, prick. Willie fired back. Tommy walked over to Willie's bed, placed his hand on his shoulder, and said, Maybe you can talk to the boss. I I know we already said that that would be a waste of time, but hey, it's at least worth a try, right? You can have my lucky pack of playing cards. It's not, I'm not saying it's the reason why I'm still here, but, you know, it's the reason why I'm here. There's got to be some good luck attached to this thing. Marshy said, pulling out a worn-looking pack of playing cards from his flight jacket. Why don't we give you our lucky charms, and maybe all of our combined luck can, you know, that can sway the boss. I'm not against it. You need all the help you can get, Willie, Tommy said. Oh, what, you're not going for me? Willie asked. I figured we could go together, you know? Tight formation. 
Okay. All right. First thing tomorrow, we'll go. Which, by the way, I did find out that while you were gone, there is a mission planned for tomorrow, but we don't seem to be selected, not at least at this moment. Willie informed Tommy. Okay. That sounds good then. Yes, let's talk to the boss tomorrow and hopefully we can get this figured out. As of now, the wedding is planned for Sunday the 28th during the their Sunday morning service. Tommy explained. Shit, tomorrow is Saturday. We don't have a whole lot of time to spare. Let Shelby doesn't uh, need time to think on it. Willie commented. The following morning, the airfield bristled with activity as the day's mission loomed. It held a special but uneasy significance as it marked the 30th mission for three crew members of the 300th. One was a pilot from the 528th Squadron, and the other two were Leslie and Moose of the 530th Squadron's Bob McGee. Despite the shared awareness, no one dared to mention the milestone, fearing they might jinx the fortunate trio. That morning, Jack, feeling surprisingly unburdened by a hangover for the first time in almost 36 hours, seized the opportunity to talk to Leslie and Moose after the briefing. The mission for the day was directed at an airfield and weapons depot just outside the French town of St. Lo. Although labeled as a milk run with minimal flak and fighters, seasoned men like Leslie and Jack knew better than to place trust in the promise of an easy mission. The spirits of Leslie and Moose were a mixture of fear and hope. While both men refrained from acknowledging that it might be their final mission, either way, the weight of reality was etched in their faces. Jack had, to some extent, accepted this inevitable reality. Jack, Beck, Ronnie, and a few others from the 530th Squadron stood by the control tower, waiting for the green flare to be fired. The early morning sun had just broken free from its horizon prison, casting radiant rays that warmed the sweet and breezy late spring morning air. Suddenly, the green flare was launched, and like clockwork, Fortresses from across the airfield began igniting their engines. The aircraft taxied to their respective runway, and as Bob McGee rolled by, Leslie gave Jack and Ronnie a thumbs up and a salute. Minutes later, the 530th Squadron lifted off the tarmac and soared into the air, carrying with them the hopes of many, desperately hanging on to the belief that a safe return was possible. While this transpired up in High Brass Hall, the boss stood in his office, observing the planes taking off and forming up above the airfield. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. Come in, the boss said. The door opened, and to his surprise, Colonel Poole stood before him, wearing a look that the boss found challenging to decipher. Good morning, Captain. Good morning, sir, the boss responded as he walked back to his desk. Captain, where is uh, Captain Koth this morning? I, I don't know, sir. I, I think perhaps he's in the mess hall or out there watching the takeoff, sir. You'd be correct, Captain. He is, in fact, in the mess hall. In fact, he's been there since 0430 when the men all were woken up. He's just now getting a bite to eat. The boss was taken aback and confused by Colonel Poole's words. Before he could ask any clarifying questions, Colonel Poole continued. Now, where is uh, Major Gould today? I think he's leading his squadron on the mission, sir. Once again, you are correct, Captain Bacchus. He's leading his men on the mission today, flying with the pilot, who will be going home after completing his 30th mission today. That is, if he comes back. Now, let me ask you this, Captain Bacchus. 
Where is your friend, Captain Plank? The boss's heart began to beat faster and faster as the tone of Colonel Poole only increased and intensified. He's down on the flight line, sir, as he usually does. Right once again, Captain, so you know where your fellow squadron commanders are, which makes me even more ticked as hell as to why you're standing here. Looking out that window like you're in some ivory tower, nonetheless, you've got two men from your squadron leading the formation today on their 30th mission, and you can't even bother to be out on the flight line with them or spend time with them during morning mess? The boss now was starting to break out into a nervous sweat as Colonel Poole continued. Captain, I have been patient, understanding, and forgiving of you, more so than I should have. In fact, Cutting you some slack has begun to hurt my reputation as the base commander. People have been wondering why I've been treating you with such special treatment. Up until recently, it was because I thought there was something to you. Something that inspired your men, kept them going, got them to perform well. However, now I realize that it wasn't you at all that I saw. Brunswick worked out because you were lucky enough to have a top-tier shelf bombardier who you downplayed in your account of what happened. And that's not all. Everything I gave you credit for, I now realize was the workings of someone else, whom you took the credit from. You forget, Captain, that these men talk, especially when it comes to bitching about their inadequate squadron commander. The other squadron commanders all have their quirks, oddities, and flaws, sure, but their men respect them. Hell, Captain Plank wasn't even from the 300th when he came here, and he's been here for less than a month, and his men love and respect him. All this to say, Captain... I'm giving you just one last shot. One last chance to prove yourself. We've got something big on the horizon, and we can't afford to screw this up. Not to mention, your squadron has suffered heavy losses recently, men that you knew all too well. Morale, I'm sure, is lowering as we speak. I want to see some significant changes from you. If I don't see improvement by the end of next week, then I will personally have you transferred out of the 300th, and I will let headquarters deal with you from there on out. Understood? The boss, frozen in fear, took a second to register Colonel Poole's words, but then replied with, Yes, yes, sir. Good. Clock is ticking, Bacchus. Better not catch you in this office unless you're writing letters to families or doing work that I assigned you. You're not an administrator. You're a squadron commander. Yes, sir. The boss responded before Colonel Poole uttered final words and then left the office. Seconds later, both Tommy and Willie arrived in the boss's doorway. In the mess hall, Mills and the rest of Lord of Bull's crew members were having their breakfast. Muth, barely touching his food, looked up at Marshy, who was scarfing his food down, and regarded him with disgust. How in the world are you inhaling this shit? With a mouth full and still chewing, Marshy replied, when, when you're starving, anything seems appetizing. Muth took his fork, stuck it into the green-tinted powdered eggs, and along with the two slices of fried spam, shook his head and slid his food over to Marshy, saying, Well, here, you can have mine. Thanks, Muth, Marshy replied. Say, you don't think it's a little messed up that we only get decent food when we're going on a mission? I heard that the guys who were flying the mission this morning got scrambled eggs and sausage. We get this science experiment, complained Muth as he grabbed a toothpick from his pocket and stuck it in his mouth. 
because the army has a funny sense of humor. Remember, these are the same people that didn't teach us the bailout of burning planes, open parachutes, field dress a wound, work a fire extinguisher because, well, reasons. Mills added right after he took a sip from his coffee. Yeah, real funny shit. Thank you, Uncle Sam, muttered Muth. Just then, Tommy and Willie took a seat at the end of the table. From their body language and facial expressions, it looked like the men were dissatisfied with their results. Well, what did he say? Asked Beans. Tommy, with his head slumped down, eyes locked onto the tabletop, recounted, He gave Willie an option. A real shitty option. Looking up at Willie, Tommy took a deep breath as Willie added, He gave me the option of not being able to leave the base until my time is served, or being grounded until my time is served. Well, well, that's a no-brainer. Take the grounding, Marcia called out. Well, see, if he does that, that means that he'll be behind Tommy in missions. Right now, they're at the same number. Besides, would you want to be here longer than you needed to be? He could potentially fly two to three missions from now until then. With the weather being how it's been, I, it's doubtful it'd be that many, but it's still a possibility. That, and I'm sure there's other reasons, Mills explained. Well, which one are you going to pick? Beans asked. Well, she, I already chose one. We didn't have that kind of time. I chose the grounding. I can't miss my friend's wedding, replied Willie. You are a real friend, Willie, commented Beans. This broad better be worth it, Tommy, Willie said as he dug into his pocket for a cigarette and shot a wink at his friend. She is, Willie. You and I both know that she is. Thank you for listening to another episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content, such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast is produced by Cantua 34 Studios, a DIY project that's helping to raise awareness to the brave young men that sacrificed their lives in the skies over Europe in World War II. If you'd like more information about the podcast, please visit our website or reach out to me directly. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned next time for another episode of Season 2 of Snafu. Snafu.